We are in a series um, called Hidden Assumptions, and um, the series is really all about idols, um, and specifically within the context of idols, um, we're actually talking about the, the deeper idols, and I'll explain what I mean by that in, in a minute, um, <clears throat> but I'll kind of lead off the discussion by saying this, is that we all have um, assumptions, we all have assumptions, some are explicit, some are implicit, some are stated, some are just kind of beneath the surface, um, and it exists in every area of our life, it doesn't matter if you are um, a Christian or not a Christian, kind of where you are in faith, right, all of us drove here under the assumption if you drove here or if you rode with someone here you drove with the assumption that your brakes were going to work Um, you sat down with the assumption that your chair was going to be able to hold you and all the screws were in place Um, whether you realize it or not you're making a a series of calculated decisions based off of pre-held thoughts and beliefs Um, and that is true for every single one of us and what I find interesting in this series is as we're talking about idols um when we say idol or when I say idol, I mean anything that sits at the center of your life, anything that sits at the center of my life, anything that takes the throne before God, anything that's ahead or above of who God is. And we all have a tendency to have idols. But what we rarely do is take a look and say, what is the assumption that I believe that idol will deliver? I assume if I sit, what this chair will deliver is maybe a sense of comfort. Um, if you get here too late, one of the services is too packed and you get one of the, the black fold-out plastic chairs, right? You're assuming, I wish I would have gotten here earlier, or I wish the person I rode with would have picked me up sooner, or I wish they would have actually gotten ready on time and we would be in a comfortable chair, right? But you assume what that chair is going to provide. Well, we all make assumptions about the things that matter most. But rarely do we take the time to evaluate, can it deliver on its promise? And so this series, simply put, is about evaluating the deeper held idols, or in other words, not the surface things, but the deeper needs that create the idols that we see more on the surface area. And so instead of just saying, hey, don't, you know, let, let's remove this idol, let's remove this idol of, of self, let's remove this idol of comfort, let's remove this idol of, of you know, uh, relationship, let's remove this idol of success, we're saying, why does that exist? Why does that exist? What is the need that's causing it? And let's examine that because if we try to remove an idol, if we try to remove a thing without replacing it with something, it will create the same thing in and of itself. And you know this, that you have this. Or you've seen this in maybe a little bit different way. When I was in high school, I had, um, I had, I had friends who were heathens and they, you know, drank too much. Um, obviously, I never did that because I wasn't a heathen. But, you know, I had friends who were in that boat, right? And, and from time to time, somebody would go a little bit overboard with it. And, right, they make the declaration, like, I'm never going to drink again, Right? Until next weekend, you know, because I really actually don't have an opportunity until next weekend, right? And then they just kind of go back to it over and over. And we've all done that in different areas. We kind of go back to the same thing that we know is harmful to us over and over and over again. And the reason why is because we just think we can remove it. Not realizing that there was a need that that filled. And unless we identify that need and replace it with something else, we will continually have a misprioritization of the things in our life. This morning, I'm super excited. Um, we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about an idol that I think is an equal opportunity offender. 
I'm, 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 I'm hyped about this morning. Um, we're going to talk about the thing that's probably the most sensitive to talk about in church, which is why I like to talk about it, because I'm like, oh, there's something sensitive. Let's bring it right front and center. Um, so we are going to talk about today money, 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 money. Now, let me tell you a couple things as we talk about money. Um, as soon as I said money, about half of you thought, and about half of you were online, you're like, yeah, I know he's going to hit downtownconnectchurch.com backslash give. We get it. We get it. No. <clears throat> Isn't this true? For most of us, when I said money, your assumption was I was talking about giving. But the Bible has so much more to say than that. And in fact, in fact, the idol of money, I think, has its claws in every person, but it's almost impossible to see in the mirror. The idol of money has its claws in almost every single person, but it's almost impossible to see in the mirror. And here's what I mean by that. For some of us, when we think about the idol of money, what we think about is this excessive sense of materialism, right? It's this sense that, that you know, you're going to buy the nicest things and the biggest things and the best things, and you're going to be extravagant with your spending. And that certainly is a type of idolatry. That is certainly a type or a way that the, that the love of money, the idol of money can create a behavior, and so we oftentimes think, okay, the fancy, the new, the nice, and some of you are thinking, okay, well, I'm not that person, so I feel so good about this morning. I'm glad, I'm glad my spouse is here, right? I'm glad my kids are here. I'm glad my, you know, whoever's here because they need to hear this. But isn't this true? Isn't this interesting? On the other side of it, there's a big chunk of us where the idol of money is not the idol of extravagance. It's the idol of security, that you want to gain and save and gain and save and gain and save because the more I have, the more secure I feel. The more I have, the more secure I feel. In fact, money's interesting because, because money is the type of thing that it is so easy to inappropriately leverage for our behalf. For some of us, it's extravagant spending. For some of us, it's the idea of saving and comfort. For some of us, we are charitable with our money and we want everybody to know about it, right? And so you give and you're generous, right? You pay for everything all the time and, and everybody's like, you know, you know, oh, thank you, that's awesome, thank you, wow. And you're like, oh no, it's the Lord, you know? It's like, okay, whatever. On the other side of it, some of us, money is the means to the end and the, and the ends that that's a means to is comfort. It's not necessarily that we need to feel secure. We just don't want to be inconvenienced. This is the God of Instacart that we use regularly, right? Like, we're just busy and stuff's going on. And I'm, I'm not anti that. We use that every single week. We had an Instacart person yesterday. We had something we had to go to and they were going to get there on time. We're like, dude, what's up with Instacart, right? Like, so this is not me speaking with incredible moral authority. I'm just saying for all of us, for all of us, for all of us, there is something about money that has its teeth in us, that has its claws in us, and that oftentimes has a tendency, whether detected, undetected, money in almost every single one of us creates something that drives a need. Whether it is the extravagant spending and the value and the worth that we feel from that, whether it's the safety and predictability and the consistency that we feel from having a savings account or having an investment account, whether it's the, the sense of, of, of a benevolent benefactor that we feel when we give generously and charitably, or whether it's the sense of comfort 
that we don't have to try much when we don't want to. For some of us, the ultimate goal is it just gives us autonomy. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, with whomever you want. They call that the American dream. If I can make enough, if I can earn enough, if I can acquire enough, I don't have to do anything for anybody that I don't want to. All I have to answer to is myself. And I say all that to simply say this. This is all of us this morning. Money is an equal opportunity idol and an equal opportunity offender. And the needs that they serve get a little bit difficult and a little bit complex because each one of us is different. For some of us, it is safety. For some of us, it is validation. It is worth. Again, for some of us, it is comfort. For some of us, it is this intrinsic need to feel valued, to feel loved, to feel acceptable, to feel autonomous. But money up top for every one of us has a tendency to serve some type of a need down below. And Jesus obviously talked about this all the time. He talked about, you know, possessions and wealth and all this all the time. There's a lot of things that we kind of take out of context or assumptions that we jump to about what Jesus said. But one day Jesus was talking, and he was talking to a group of, of actually a few thousand people. And as he was talking, his, his message in the first, you know, kind of introduction of his talk was simple. It was don't fear don't fear the people or just, you know, the, the, the folks that are around, the people that can just harm the body. Fear God who can harm the body and the soul. In other words, I will give you someone to fear. We talked about this a, a couple months ago, right? It's not that God's sitting there saying, hey, you, you should be terrified of me. But if my kids who are on the playground and, and one of my kids comes up to me and says, you know, well, well you know, Karen said something or, or Johnny said something or whoever said something and, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, no, 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 you don't listen to them. You listen to me. I'm your dad. You don't fear the one who could make fun of you in preschool. You fear the one, that, you fear the one who could put that little hiney in time out forever, right? And so that's his message. Well, a, a, a teacher who's hearing this, as he listens to what Jesus said, there's something internally happening inside of him, a family tension that exists that he wants to hear what Jesus' thoughts are on. And so in the book of Luke, Luke, his, who is a historian, who, who documented the life of Jesus meticulously, wrote, to a letter, wrote a letter to a guy named Theophilus and said, Theophilus, I'm writing this, an orderly account, talked to a bunch of people, interviewed a bunch of people. He was actually a medical doctor at the same time and said, I am writing that you can have an orderly account of the life of Jesus and unpacks this story in a parable that Jesus tells. So this is what happens in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if you have kids, you know exactly how this goes, right? Tell them to share that with me. They didn't tell you that they just took the other three from their brother or sister and punched them in the face afterwards, right? Like very limited information. He just says, Jesus, tell my brother, tell my brother to share that with me. Now, what we, what we know to be true of the context is that in their day and in their age, an older brother would usually get two thirds and the left, left, rest, next third would be you know, left to the next child or kind of how they depended to chop it up on um, the next you know, set of children. So he's saying, okay, Jesus, Jesus. I know you care about fairness. I know you care about justice. So Jesus, tell my brother to share it with me. And is Jesus interested in justice? Absolutely. 
But Jesus, being the ultimate in terms of understanding, having situational awareness of what's happening in the basement of people's hearts, saw that this was not a question of justice and fairness. This was a question based in idolatry. So here's how he responds. So Jesus replied, man, I don't know if he said it like that. He's probably like, man. You know, I'm like, man, come on. <clears throat> man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? He could have just left it at that, but he decides to launch into this. He said, then he said to them, he said, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He said, I want you to watch out. I want you to be on guard against all kinds of greed. Be honest. None of us listen to this, this verse. And I don't mean that accusatory. I just mean that honestly. I have in my nearly two decades now of ministry experience, never once, never once had someone say, Ben, I need to go to coffee. I got a problem. Okay, what's your problem? I, whew, this is going to be tough. I am greedy. I've had people say, Ben, I got a problem. <clears throat> this is what's happening with my girlfriend. This is what's happening with my boyfriend. This is what's happening with my marriage. I've had, Ben, I've had a problem. I can't stop looking at stuff on the internet. Ben, I've got a problem. You know, it just seems like, like, like my relationship with God is dry. I don't really know what to do. Ben, I've, I've heard lots of different thoughts and problems and issues and internal stressors and anxieties and what do I do with my life. I have never once, never once had someone come to me and say, you know what, man, I was just looking in the mirror this morning and I looked at myself and I said, you know what, <laughs> that dude I see is greedy. I think that's why Jesus said, watch out for it. Because it's almost impossible to see in the mirror. You want to know why? At least what I think is why, and this is you know, fairly anecdotal, so you could probably have your reasons why and your assumptions, but after kind of reading some about this and thinking some about this, I think it's for a couple different reasons. One, when I see someone else who is greedy, I see them as greedy, but when I see myself, I see myself as being reasonable. That what I do has reason behind it, what I do have, has thought behind it, and what I do isn't greedy, what I do is reasonable. The reason why I think we think it's reasonable is this. It's because we as people are called to, to go and work hard, as Jesus followers called to thrive and hopefully to succeed. And as we do, you know this, what's one day's success is the next day's normalcy. What's one day's success is the next day's normalcy. And so you work hard and you work hard and you work hard. And let's just say, you know, you get to that next tax bracket, right? And then you start hanging out with that tax bracket of people. But the problem is when you start hanging out with that tax bracket of people, you all of a sudden see, oh, I used to think that that was excessive. But now I see that that's fairly normal. That They have all that stuff. They have all those things. And so that begins to normalize. Over time, it progresses. And as you kind of raise up into that tax bracket and you kind of see the deck, you're like, oh man, like I'm here, but when I get to that point, some of you are living in houses, especially online, some of you are living in houses that you never thought you would live in and you can't wait to get to a bigger one. This is what makes us take cars that work and trade them in for cars that also work, that are twice as expensive, three times as expensive, four times as expensive, right? It's like, yeah, but this one has a backup camera. Wow, I didn't know. Isn't this true? Isn't this true? 
We all do this. We all do this. Whether it is a higher level of savings, whether it is a higher level of this kind of, you know, benevolence and altruistic, you know, donations, whether it is this sense that we have this excessive and exorbitant spending, we all do it. Different manifestations. But he says, watch out. Because this is tough to see in the mirror. This is tough to see in the mirror. But I want you to know this. And he gives his thesis statement for the rest of the day. That a man's life or a woman's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It is not made, it is not actualized, it is not defined by the abundance of possessions. So Jesus understanding being the master kind of communicator would understand that this, they would get this, but he said, I think I need to make this more tangible and turn this into a story. He told him a parable, verse 16. He said, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. It's good. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is a successful person's problem. This is him saying, man, I planted and it was crazy. I mean, I don't really have control over the growth. And those of you who you have or you own or you're looking forward towards a small business, right? You know this. There are seasons where you work really hard and it seems like there's nothing. And there's seasons where you work really hard and it seems like it just grows by 10 times what your hard work could do and accomplish. And so he's looking at it and saying, man, this crop was unreal. We would all look at that and say, good for you. Can you talk at our leadership conference? Right? Can you, you want to give the, the giving talk, by the way, on Sunday, right? Like, 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 since you understand, obviously, money, how it works, how it is. And so the guy sees he made an incredible amount, and he decides that he does not have enough to store everything that he has. And so he comes to a decision that we would all probably uniformly say, this is a wise decision. None of us would look at this and be like, you sinner and sluggard. He does what's reasonable. Then he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, <laughs> look at what he says, I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of goods and things that up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Here's what I think is interesting about Jesus. Jesus essentially, if we were to say broad categorization, there's two categories of people as it relates to money. There is the, the, the exorbitant spender and the, the kind of miserly saver, an investor. And he says, this is like a both thing. He wants to save so much, he can live however he wants to. And so he's going to build this gigantic barn. But God said to him, you fool. This is like your bank account getting so big that you need to open up a second one. And you open up a second one, God's like, you're such an idiot. It's like, what? It's like, that, that seems reasonable. This very night, your life will be demanded from, then, from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And he tells him this principle. 
This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself. But, and this is a very important but, because to this point in the story, Jesus is kind of setting us up to think, okay, if you save a bunch, if you save a bunch, it's a bad thing. If you save too much, it's a bad thing. And here's what we all know about the difficulty with that, is that that, again, is relativistic. It's subjective to the individual and to the person. If you're in college, you're like, yo, if I have 10 grand in my account, like there's five digits in my bank account. Like there's two digits after the comma, right? You're like, your boy is killing it, right? Your girl is living large at this point. For some of you, you know, you're a little bit farther along and you're looking towards retirement and you're like, I'm not gonna be able to eat in three weeks, right? Because when it comes to whatever that is, again, whatever that is is subjective to how much you have and how much you earn and the people you spend time around. One of the things that you should know about me, and, and in fact, I, I should probably preface this whole thing, was that there is no ulterior motives for me in this sermon because for me, for us, for my family, you guys know that I'm bivocational. I run our family's meat company, Register Smoked Pork Sausage. You should buy it at Publix, Walmart, Winn-Dixie. God's meat, hashtag tithing almost, right? Like, it, it's phenomenal. But, but, but here's what I would say, is that if everybody, if everybody at our church stopped giving, I would my lights would still go on. I would, I would suffer very little because honestly, this year, God willing, will be the first year that we um, give more to the church and the church pays me. And so I say this with clarity to say, we think in a world where we earn and we work and we earn and we work, there's this subjective level to how much is too much, how much is too much, how much is too much. And Jesus being the master storyteller, I think was setting us up to think and he's saying, so don't save, don't save, don't save too much, don't spend too much, don't relax too much. But that is not Jesus' point. Jesus' point was simple and his point was clear. He says this, with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God, you see, the opposite of savings, the opposite of investing, or the opposite of spending, is the opposite of spending isn't saving, the opposite of saving isn't spending, and it's not all just generosity. He says, no, 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 no. I want you to begin to think of a new category, that perhaps what you experience in this life is not all there is to life. I want you to think that perhaps what you have right here and right now is not simply for right here and right now. But perhaps it should be leveraged for and towards eternity. After this, the Bible creates kind of a subheading, which we oftentimes think is a separation of what's there and then what's next. But this was one continuous thought for Jesus. Verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body or what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. In other words, he says, I want you to examine your worry. Examine your worry. On the other side of money, what is the thing that you fear? On the other side of money, if you don't have enough, what's the thing that you fear? That thing that you fear is the place of idolatry. He says, so I don't want you to worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. We're like, Jesus, I don't, I'm not really worried about what I'm going to eat or drink today. I'm worried about what I'm going to eat or drink, you know, 30 years from now when I retire. Jesus says, come on. What's on the other side of your fear? What's on the other side of your worry? The other reason I think greed is so difficult to detect 
is because it doesn't manifest itself in a linear sense always that, that because I'm greedy, I do this. It's because I have an internal thought that I need to satiate my own needs, my own desires in this temporal sense. If I don't, the anxiety drives me. The fear drives me. And then this true? That your fears drive you. Oftentimes, more than your desires. Your aversion to the thing that you're afraid of will drive you to overcorrect in the opposite directions and it happens all the time. So he says, you know, let me just pause for a second and talk about some animals. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Now, the birds do work. Some of you are like, oh man, that's awesome. I'm just gonna sit on my couch and be like, God, right? He's like, no, 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 no. They don't tilt the field, but they actually do go find stuff and work stuff. He says, but, but, but they're understanding that there's not a huge sense of control that they have. And so they're just gonna work and they're just gonna, you know, God's gonna take care of them. So who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? We all communally realize this, by the way, in 2020. That everything that we thought we had control over, we thought, man, yeah, it'll be fine. Here's our plans. Here's our things. Here's our kind of, if, if you're in the marketplace, here's our market plans. Here's our ideas. Here's where we're going to go. Here's the progress we're going to make. And then 2020 crash happened, and we're like, what? He says, so you can't even control that. Then let's take another one. Verse 27, consider how lilies grow. Do they not labor or spin? Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little, and I can't emphasize this enough, faith. Here's the epicenter of this morning. The core of idolatry is a lack of trust in God. The core of the idolatry of money is a lack of a trust of God. It's that I am going to trust this finite resource as opposed to the infinite God. I am going to, tr I'm going to trust that this is going to be this dollar, this you know, pledge of assets, this Bitcoin, whatever the heck that is, of blockchain, crypto, right, right? That this thing is going to be worth something and it is going to provide for me and I'm going to choose to actively trust in that as opposed to trust in God. And let me be very honest too. The older you get, the more difficult you, this is. The older you get, the more difficult this is. If you are young, you are at such a good opportunity to set your life in a trajectory of trusting God and here's why. You guys know my story when we started the church for... Gosh, two months or so, I went homeless on the streets of Tallahassee. It wasn't this big, glorious thing. I didn't blog about it every day or like Instagram. Like, oh, God is homeless too, right? Like, like it, was, it was just what I felt like God was calling me to do. And if everything burned down in my life tomorrow, I can live on the streets. I know how to do that. I've been there. And honestly, it's a little bit less stressful. Let me tell you why this is difficult for me. Because at this stage of my life, I can go without. And it doesn't matter to me. 
You know who does matter to me? My wife and my kids. I want to provide for them. Living for eternity with them in mind can be very difficult because I can go without, but the people who depend on me, the people who count on me make it very difficult because I don't want them to. And the more responsibility that you have, the more people in your company, the more people in your nonprofit, the more people in your house that are dependent on you. The greater the consequence of your decisions with money and the greater the temptation to have it as an idol. At the core of this, Whatever direction your idol in is in is an opportunity to trust. Whatever your direction your idol is in is an opportunity to trust. Here's how Jesus unpacks the rest of this thought. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink do not worry about it for the pagans or for the pagan world runs after such things <laughs> and your father knows what you need. But instead seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. This is huge. Because this is not a sermon about Giving, this is not a sermon about tithing. This is not a sermon about how exactly you should, you know, chop up the ideas of saving and investing and generosity and spend and all that kind of, you know, I mean, all, all that's important and it's very good to think about and hash out and, and do on purpose and have a plan for. But at its core, this is a thing where God's just saying, hey, you can either choose to trust that or you can choose to trust me. But you can't trust in both. You can either choose to trust that or you can choose to trust me, but you cannot choose both. And why I think, in fact, why we as a church are committed to this sense of gospel centrality. That's okay if that's your phone. Honestly, I thought that was my phone for a second. I'm like, dang it, I forgot to turn it off. <clears throat> why we as a church are committed to gospel centrality is this. Because at the core of what we need to do is not to decide I'm going to live less for money. It's not the decision that I'm going to live less for the comfort that this causes or less for the value and the worth that this creates or less for the sense of I feel good about myself when I give a lot. It, it, it has nothing to do with that. At the core of this is a sense and an understanding that he says this is an issue of trust, that your father knows what you need before he would eat, before you even know what you need, before you even have thoughts of what you need. Your father, my father, knows what we need. And if he would be willing to pay his only son, we're not talking about some God that just kind of leverages himself, leverages authority. If he would be willing to pay his only son, then to do anything but trust that what he wants us to do is best would be wildly illogical. To do anything besides trust 
That to say, God, if you, if you would be willing to give your son because of my sinfulness, because of the fact that I can be as moral and as good as I want to, but in everything that I can do, I cannot earn my way into your good graces. And you saw that, you valued me, you cared for me, not because I was valuable and cared for a bull. It was because of the fact that I was in still sin and I was wretched and I was depraved and I was in rebellion against you, but you still saw me, loved me, sent your son to die for me. And if you would do that for a rebel like me, I can trust you with everything. We do not need to replace the love of money with an attempted desire to love money less. We need to replace the love of money with a deeper understanding of God's love for us. Because when we understand God's love for us, we will trust that he knows what's best. We will trust that he cares about us. We will trust that he is the ultimate one that gives us value, that he is the ultimate one that gives us worth. We will trust that he is the only one that has ultimate provision over us and over our lives. We will trust that God, who so loved us, he gave his son to die for us, is worth trusting. And we will choose to trust. So here's what I want you to do with this whole thing. You can evaluate how you spend. And I think that's helpful because it helps us to understand where our idol is and where our heart is. But at the core of it, I want you to think, I just want you to think, what is, what is that promise that I'm hoping? What is that need that I'm hoping that I'm trusting this money will make? And how does Jesus fill that need? Because the love of money is not simply removed It's replaced with an understanding of God's love for us. And when I understand that he loves me so much that he would send his son to die for me, the depth of the understanding of that helps us to live. Informs us how to live with eternity in mind. You might have the same amount in your bank account. You might have the same type of spending. You might be just as generous, you might be more generous, you might be less generous. But if how we deal with money doesn't come from our existential internal needs, but from the overflow of the eternity that lives inside of us, it will no longer be an idol. So what's the area for you that you need to acknowledge your trust in wealth and possessions or what it brings And replace that with a trust in how God fills that need. Let's pray together. Jesus, I ask and I pray for each one of us. We all have a place in this. This is true of every single one of us. That some way, shape, or form, we have a tendency. Whether we're the person that that the barn isn't big enough, we just want to build bigger and bigger and bigger barns whether we're the person that just wants to eat, sleep, and be merry. Whoever we are, wherever we are, God, we know that we all have a tendency that money, the surface idol of money, fills a heart need that only you can fill. And we know that money will never fill that. We can never have enough to feel comfortable enough, safe enough, valid enough, consistent enough, secure enough, You have called us to work diligently. You have called us to be great stewards. You have called us 
to invest what we have and you have called us to give what we have. All of those things are true. But more than any of that, you have called us to trust you with our hearts, with our lives and to fill the needs. We will continually look for money and we will continue to look for money to fill those needs so long as they're not replaced by you, Jesus. I pray that every single one of us would do the difficult work, the honest work. To say, what's this need? What is the area? What's the fear? What's the worry? What's the anxiety behind what I have with money? Because money is useful and great, but money is not worth serving with my life. Only you are King Jesus, and we trust you no matter what that means or what that looks like. Help us to know. Help us to believe and have a deeper understanding that if you would send your son to die for us, we can trust you with everything. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.